I'd invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 this morning. That's where we're going to put our attention. The theme of the text I'm about to read to you is mockery. Listen for that theme as I read. Verses 16 through 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak And put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Well, the theme of this text, as you can see interwoven through the paragraphs I've just read, is mocking Christ. Our culture still today, which is less and less religious, almost an ah-religious culture, except for other certain portions of the country, it still mocks Jesus. It still mentions Jesus' name. It still is a sort of a phrase of exasperation that people will say. Why? Why do people bring Jesus up? Why does the name Jesus still come out in pop culture as a filler word or as a throwaway word or as someone being astonished at something will say, Jesus Christ? Why do they do that? Jesus represents sinlessness, And his sinlessness, especially as portrayed thinking of him dying for sin, becomes a mirror reflection back on the culture of the culture's sinfulness. And so Christ becomes a crossroads at that point in someone's conscience when they look to him to do one of two things. You either believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins as the sin bearer on your behalf, or you see him in a way that he is an offense that all you can do is mock. So you're either believing 
or mocking. And this is loaded, our text is loaded with four categories of mockery, really four kinds of people are mocking Jesus. Mocking is not new to us in our culture. We see it all the time. People are mocking each other. Oh, just for fun or just in casual jest, but usually it's to really rip somebody up or tear them down. Someone that's making them feel awkward, so they mock them to put them down. It's sort of a king of the hill who's going to tear the other person down and win. We see this with political debates, and I hate to dampen the mood, but um, the the political carnival is beginning to ensue again in August. Uh, According to the Republican National Committee, they decided this February that the opening Republican presidential debate of 2024 election season will commence in Milwaukee at August 2023. So, Coming up in August, the presidential nominees will begin to debate each other. And really, what comes out so soon in these debates, it's entertaining, I'll say that, but it's very awkward because it's less about the political platform and change and progress and more about exposing the other person's weakness by mocking them. And sin is at the forefront of this, someone's pride and ego to mock, and then someone is exposed for what they're being mocked for, which there's always a modicum of truth within what someone says about the other, or it wouldn't be effective. (laughs) Mocking is bad. Uh, What used to be private between a person and God is now exposed in a lot of ways through media, and it's before the watching world because of media, not just televised, um, telecast of it, but what is you know, left on YouTube or shown out there. It's all in high def for someone to see. There is a redemptive lesson, though, and you can learn from this lesson of being mocked, if you've been mocked, and I'm sure you have in ways, to understand that there is some truth behind what someone says about you. And I've, I don't know where I heard this first. I've tried to dig it up in church history. It was either Edwards or Spurgeon, but this is my best version of it. The greatest enemies are your greatest experts, in your areas of weakness. So you can leverage, if you're humble, you can leverage what someone says against you as a means to refine yourself and to grow in areas of weakness. Because again, your greatest critics are experts in your greatest areas of weakness. So you can learn from what they're telling you, if you'll listen. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, always turn one blind eye and one deaf ear to what any critic says of you. But that assumes that you're actually listening a little bit to what someone says about you so you can learn. But there's another hidden um, sort of redemptive principle that's embedded here with all the mocking that's going on against Christ because there was one person in all of human history that deserved no mocking, where no mocking is warranted whatsoever. And it's the one man, Jesus Christ, who died as a sinless savior for us on a cross. Mockery was never warranted against him, and the reason people mock Jesus is what I've said before. It's because they are riddled in their own conscience for the sin that Jesus exposes back to them. It's a mirror reflection back where somebody has to do something with what Jesus has just exposed. And so you either do something with it by hardening up and hiding and mocking or opening up, repenting, and feeling the relief of the grace of the gospel in your life by being saved. 
How sinful are we? Well, the Lord destroyed the world by flood, Genesis 6, 5, and 6, because every intention of the thoughts of the heart of man was only evil continually. That's how bad the cycle of sin is in the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We lie to ourselves, saying we're better than we are. Romans 3, 10 through 18 is the grocery list of how bad we are. None is righteous. No, not one. None understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their list. Lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's just a portion of Romans 3. We're bad. We're really bad and we're blind too. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. We can't even see what's good and good for us in the gospel. Because Satan has distorted it and made, it, made us blind to it. So let me ask this question from the text that we just read. What would you do if you were passing by Christ crucified on the cross? Would you mock or believe? Everybody but one person in this text is mocking Jesus. Everybody. And Jesus is pictured in paintings as high up on a hill, but probably, history tells us, he was crucified more at eye level. The centurion who would believe, seeing the world, you know, sort of tilled upside down with uh, people coming out of the graves and darkness over the earth when Jesus was at that hour on the cross, he said, surely it's the Son of God. He was face to face with Christ. He was the, the watching guard, sort of. You know, probably Jesus is on a post with a cross beam about seven feet in the air and you're just walking by Jesus and you have a decision to make whether to believe he's the sacrifice or he is to be mocked. He's either Messiah or he's a fool. And Rome wanted to make him the fool, wanted to punish the people for believing in Jesus ever at all. Well, what we're looking at is four groups that mock Jesus, that mock Christ. And we're learning the path not to follow by looking at these groups. Look back with me at verse 15. It sets the stage. It says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Just point out a couple of things. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, he represents Rome. Roman rule. He is the fifth governor of, Rome, of the Roman province of Judea, serving under the emperor Tiberius. He was serving in those later years leading up to Jesus' ministry, A.D. 26, 27 through A.D. 36 and 37. He's appointed to that moment by Rome, but under God's sovereign rule to be this representative as the ultimate sort of arrogant, overconfident, and fully passive leader who has Jesus on trial. He's placating the bloodthirsty crowd of the Jews, giving them Barabbas, the Jews who had hailed Jesus saying, Hosanna, within the Passion Week, by the end, had had a complete change of heart and were selling out on Christ and wanted Barabbas instead. They had looked to the sinless Savior and they made their decision to mock Jesus saying, crucify him, give us a sinner, not a Savior. 
A sinner will make me feel good about my sin. I can't look into the eyes of Jesus, who's completely poised under persecution, and want that kind of savior. I wanted a political monarch, not a sacrificial lamb, because I don't really want to deal with my sin. That's what is going on at this point. Pontius Pilate, who can find no legal guilt in Jesus, is giving them Barabbas, and he gives Jesus over to be scourged, meaning rip his back to shreds and crucify him. Now, there are sermons that go into great detail about scourging and crucifixion, but I want to just be honest with how all the Gospels speak of Christ crucified. He's lifted up, he's crucified, he's nailed to a tree. It's very straightforward and very clear, but the emphasis is on the fact of Jesus being scourged and crucified, not the details. The details of what is going on deals less about what's happening with Jesus and more about what's happening inside the human heart. Mark is opening up the human heart by having people walk by Jesus and expose how sinfully hard-hearted they are towards him through mocking. The first group is the soldiers. Look at verses 16. Um, and following, it says the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That's Herod's palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. What's well, a battalion? It's an army of hundreds, perhaps 600, 700, or 800 soldiers are gathered around Jesus. Most movies or plays or skits will show Jesus at this point being mocked by a group, maybe 15 soldiers or something like that, punched, beaten, spit upon by a few, but this is hundreds. Why are there hundreds there? A battalion is there. It's because Jesus, though poised, was a great threat. He had turned the hearts by his arrival to himself. Two million Jews were there as pilgrim Jews for Passover from all the different quadrants of the world. They're there to, to worship Yahweh through the Paschal Lamb offering. And all of those Jews early in the week, as Jesus did his triumphal entry, are saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're our new king. You're our new savior. You're our new ruler. Down to Caesar, up to Jesus. That's what happened. It's the massive political swing. And so this is an intervention given with a battalion, an army around Jesus. It's the same hundreds that were around Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. The, the sole rabbi in the dark garden is the massive threat that we have to surround with soldiers. They're ping-ponging Jesus around through a sham trial through the night. You've probably heard about this before. He's bouncing between Annas and Caiaphas and then, and then Rome's Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and then Herod. Herod, we know, is sort of the, the intermediator between Rome and Judea. Rome didn't want a, a massive insurrection with millions going against Rome, and so Rome set up Herods, and you know, the, the four Herods, the Tetrarchs, were covering all the different regions, and this particular Herod um, was here to try Jesus. 
believe Herod Antipas. And he, Jesus is being ping-ponged back and forth through the night to rationalize and justify the fact that Jesus needed to die. Now it's the 9 o'clock, 9 a.m. hour. That's verse 25. It's the third hour. That, in terms of this time frame and acknowledgement, would be 9 a.m. in the morning. So the morning has broken, and the whole battalion is around Jesus. What are they doing to him? Verse 17, they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, so they dress him up to be like a king. They dress him to be like Caesar. You're the big threat. You're the big Caesar, so we're going to punish you for that. This is all the insecurity of Rome being displayed in terms of these actions. They are taking a faded um, sort of cloak, sun-faded cloak, Matthew 27, 28 says a scarlet red one. We know it is a purple cloak. It's a pretend robe. It's, it's plastered onto the back of Jesus' scourged back. And then they t- twist up a crown of thorns. These are one to two inch long spiked thorns that are put together to represent like a, the laurel wreath, which would be soft on Caesar's head. This is crushed and pushed into the scalp of Jesus causing blood to drip down, now not from his back only, but down his face. He was probably blinded by the gushing blood. And then verse 18 says they begin to salute him. They're greeting him. They're mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head. They grab like a reed or a giant stick, and they, they're hitting him and striking him and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. All of this is false worship, fake worship, honoring with lips where their heart is dead and just, just completely dead and far from Jesus Christ. This is what you never want to be party to, where you're mouthing the words of praise to Jesus, but you really don't mean it, you really don't believe it. It's very dangerous to do that. This is where a lot of our culture lives. This is the mocking phrasing of Jesus out into the culture where they're just dead to him. They have no idea what kind of fire they're playing with. They're playing with eternal fire. Why do the Romans hate Christ? He was tapping into their deep insecurity because he had interrupted their political comfort zone. They were trusting in politics instead of God. Their false worship of Caesar was exposed. Like I said, they surrounded him at Gethsemane. They, had, they were spooked by the sole rabbi. And the tables had turned, and now their fear was ramping into rage against Jesus. Listen to how John put it, the scene in John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, to the Jews, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is all a show. Look how badly we've beaten your king. He is not going to touch our political solidarity. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns. This is your king. And a purple robe and Pilate said, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. He's the ultimate pacifist. Just take him off my hands. I've done my part. I've protected Rome. You guys do it. 
From Rome's perspective, Jesus is weak, he's decimated, and they want to crush him more. They want to neutralize the threat through mocking. So they mock and they strip and they let him out to be crucified. Verse 20. They stripped him of the purple cloak. They put his own clothes on him and they let him out. Verse 21 brings up an interesting kind of commercial break in all of the destruction of Christ. And that's Simon of Cyrene. It's just an interesting note here. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in front of the country, coming in from the country, which is North Africa, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. This shows Jesus is truly physically weak. He's unable to carry the cross at this point, the cross beam. And so they conscript Siren of Cyrene, who was a Jew who, through the diaspora or the persecution of the Jews from Rome, where they spread like, like petals of a flower being blown in the wind. That's where you get diaspora. And you have um, this particular Jew who was just coming up on his pilgrim visit for Passover, minding his own business, and suddenly he's conscripted to do this. He didn't know this was going to happen. He wasn't planning to spend his Passover this way, but he is called upon to hoist up the 60-pound the crossbeam in Latin known as the patabulum uh, to carry Jesus' cross, about 50 yards, half a football field. This is what you need to do. If you've ever lifted a bar with no weight on it at a club, you know it's 45 pounds, it's pretty heavy, add some more weight, put on the shoulder, that's what Simon is called to do. It's a ray of hope, though, that is shining because as Jesus is dying, I believe he is saving Simon of Cyrene. The pilgrim Jew from North Africa shows up and he is conscripted to do physically what Jesus had called all his disciples to do spiritually. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. What happened? The disciples disbanded. They were dispersed. John and Peter kind of sneaking in incognito to follow up where Christ is about to be scourged. And we learned about that on Friday evening. Peter, who had denied Christ three times and was, was working through his own repentance. But nobody's really on scene at this point. And Simon of Cyrene is the one hauling the mail as the example with the cross beam on his back. Well, the... Roman guard continues to mock Jesus, verse 22. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine and mixed myrrh, and he did not take it. They wanted Jesus to be anesthetized or numbed in his own senses to what was going on. Jesus refused that numbing agent, wanted to feel the full weight of crucifixion. They crucified him, and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. That was all a mockery. Nobody really wanted Jesus' clothes as some kind of relic. Jesus really was not that to them. This was just a game to play, to gamble as if Jesus meant something to them, and they didn't. He didn't. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy, though Psalm twenty-two, eighteen says they would divide his garments. There were details there that were being fulfilled to show that this was the genuine act of the Messiah, that he would be lifted up. John twelve thirty-two. he was lifted up. He was crucified. He was mocked. Here's the second group, 
So you have the Roman soldiers. Second group is two robbers. Look at verse 27. Leading up to that, it's the third hour they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him, the king of the Jews, all of that was pasted up there. By the way, that's mockery as well. It's called the Titulus. But then you have the two robbers. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. What's the significance of that? They were saying Jesus is just as guilty as these two robbers. So we're going to sandwich him in between the two thieves. Two insurrectionists, two people, probably Jews, who were going against Rome, against Caesar. And Jesus is just as bad, or at least symbolized that way. Verse 32 says, they also reviled him. Those who were crucified with him also reviled. They're taking part in everything that everyone else is doing. Matthew makes sure of that. Matthew 27, 44. And the robbers were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. They're going as deep and as dark as the Roman guard, as anyone that's passing by, as the religious leaders. They are ripping Jesus apart. Bitter in their own Fate, they're taking Jesus down. And Luke 23, 39, though, says that one of them relented and one of them repented. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at, who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That's the mocking accusation. If you're so good, if you're so big, if you're so bad, fix this for yourself right now. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you were under the same sentence of condemnation. In other words, don't you realize you're getting ready to die just like the rest of us? And God is real. And we indeed justly, we deserve what we're getting. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has nothing, has done nothing wrong. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. What does that mean? That means the way to heaven is one way. Jesus, can you show me the way? Can you hold the door? And can I get in? That's how you get saved. I can't save myself. I'm a sinner worthy of death. That's what this thief is coming to. I'm a sinner worthy of death. I'm getting my just desserts. I'm condemned for my sin. And Jesus, you did nothing wrong. You're not worthy of condemnation. You're worthy to be believed upon. Can I go to paradise? Jesus says, sure. I mean, think about what someone would say at the doorway of heaven as the thief on the cross shows up. Say, why, you know, why should I let you into heaven? Well, I don't know. I wasn't baptized. Um, I never joined a church. I never sang in a choir like this group did. I, I never even went to church. I don't even know what that means. Jesus just said I could come. That's it. That's salvation. One mocked, one hardened, one repented. One saw Jesus as a threat, so you've got to tear down the threat because you're making me feel bad about my sin, while the other saw Jesus as a sinless Savior, mirroring back the opportunity for paradise. Number three, those passing by, verses 29 to 30, and those who passed by derided him. That means mocked, 
wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. That's a direct connection to the resurrection. Jesus is saying, I'm going to tear the temple down, meaning I'm going to give myself over to death on the cross and it will be rebuilt in three days. In other words, he's going to be resurrected. They didn't see that correlation. They're thinking Jesus is talking about tearing down their religious system, which he was, but he was also talking about himself. And so they were hardened up to that. They're walking by Jesus and saying, look, you said you were going to tear down our religion and here you're being torn down. You said you could build it all back up in three days. You can't even save yourself. They trust in religion. Jesus had done so much for them to show them that he is the reason for the kingdom of God. He's the centerpiece of that. He was their Messiah, their miracle worker, demon expeller, hope giver, dead raiser. But none of that mattered to them now. The palm celebration at the first of the week had completely been flipped. They didn't truly believe in Jesus. They just mouthed the words. They'd experienced healings, but they had not trusted Christ as the truth and the way and the life like the thief on the cross had and like Simon, I believe, of Cyrene had. The bizarre irony is that everyone is saying, Jesus, come off the cross. Jesus, come off the cross. Why are they saying that? That's such blasphemy because the very point of Jesus being on the cross is to save people from their sins. And so for him to remain poised, to be willing to be utterly weak and utterly strong at the same time is the amazing reality of the cross. The Savior had to stay on the cross to be the true Savior. He had to fully die and suffer the full wrath of God that we deserve. And he take, took that on himself so that we would be able to go free. Had he come down, we would not be saved. Jesus stayed on the cross as our Savior. The temple was being crushed and that is Christ. Trust in false worship, crushed and displayed in that. False hope, destroyed. The only way to be saved is to trust in Christ as Savior, the one who was raised, who's the answer. Let's look at the final group. The final group begins at verse 31. It's the religious leaders. It says, so also the chief priests and scribes mocked him to one another. I just want to Get that little phrase out there. They're whispering back and forth to each other. Cowards. These elite scholars of God's word, just cowardly, whispering in the shadows, mocking Jesus to one another. The scribes mocked him, saying, Say, he saved others. He can't save himself. He can't do this. That mocking is a fuel in their own hearts to try to be a salve for the conviction of their own sins. They're blind in their own pride. Show us a sign. If you come down, then we'll believe. Let the Christ, verse 32, the King of Israel come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Then we'll see and believe. Just do something. Perform this trick and we'll believe. Had he done that, salvation is moot. Even if Jesus had come down, they would not have believed because of the hardness of their heart. So with mocking like this and hate like this, who then can be saved? If this really is the state of our heart and condition, how can we be saved? I think we need to look back at the one person in this story, at least from Mark's perspective. We know that one of the thieves is saved as well, but from Mark's perspective, as he's 
telling us this story, he cites one person who's saved, and that's Simon of Cyrene. Go back to verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, just a, a dude from North Africa, Simon of Cyrene, who's coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Why is this significant? It's because Mark, uh, most notably, as a gospel, was sent to Rome to a small little church in Roman persecution to get encouraged. And they knew, they knew Simon of Cyrene. You know why? Because they knew Rufus and Alexander. Rufus and Alexander were Simon's boys, his kids. And they knew that from their son's testimony that their dad had carried Christ's cross. And that had made an impact on them. This is not a stretch to connect the dots like this. We have to connect the dots, but they wouldn't have. They just knew these people just like you would know your neighbor in churches in church and their name and what they stood for and perhaps things about their family background and what that meant. They knew Simon by reputation. After Christ died and rose, the church was born in North Africa. Cyrene, there was a church plant. Acts 11.20 says that there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Uh, somebody planted a church in North Africa with the Jews who had been dispersed down there. And I'm guessing, my best guess is it was Simon. He went down there and won people to Christ won his wife to Christ, raised his kids in the Lord. There was stuff going on in the church of Antioch, which was the sending church now for the mission movement in, early, in the book of Acts. By the time Acts 11 was written, Antioch was a strong church, but then it was beginning to be persecuted even inside of itself because Gentiles were being converted. They were Hellenist um, Jews, so that you have Hellenized Jews who were kind of influenced by Greco-Roman culture. You have Gentiles and you have um, Jews from Judea who were there. And there was some splits and divisions that were potentially going to happen within the early church. You can read about that in, in um, the neglect of Hellenized widows in Acts chapter 6. Well, apparently some Christians from North Africa came up from Cyprus and Cyrene to help this out. They spoke to the Hellenists and they preached the Lord Jesus there. This was all spawned by Stephen's death as an early church martyr. Romans 16 kind of completes the picture of who Simon was, though. Romans 16 is the final chapter in the book of Romans where Paul is giving some final greetings to the church at Rome. And we don't know how Rufus got there, but listen to this. Romans 16, 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. This is Simon's son. Greet Rufus. Chosen in the Lord, also his mother. That's Simon's wife. So Simon led his wife to Christ, probably. He led his boys to Christ. How significant was this woman? This woman was like a mother to Paul. It says, who has been a mother to me as well. Paul, the prison epistle writer, had a mother figure in the church. That's Simon's wife. This is how the body of Christ is built through providential dynamics 
Simon was minding his own business just on Passover. And suddenly the whole point of everything is happening with Jesus' death on the cross. And Simon is conscripted to carry that. That made a deep impression on his life. He becomes a Christian. He leads his wife to Christ, leads his children to Christ. And Rufus and no doubt Alexander became leaders in the church and support to the Apostle Paul who was writing the book of Romans. Simon's son Rufus goes to Rome. Simon's wife's there as well. You get saved, you get married, you lead your wife to Christ, you raise boys in the Lord, and the church is being built. Simon didn't mock Jesus. Simon believed. We should not mock Jesus. We must believe. Jesus said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Was he resurrected? Well, yeah, we know that to be true. Mark 16 says as much. Just look down here. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, mother, or Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. It's amazing, right? Providentially. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. That's an angel. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they've laid him. But go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. They went out and fled the tomb for trembling and astonishment and seized them. Trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, John 20 picks up on this. Again, verse one, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and she saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, meaning John, and the one whom Jesus loved or the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running Together, But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went to the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, meaning John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. Now he was a believer, just was confirming that belief. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went to their homes. Look, all this story leaves you with two options. You're either going to mock and harden your heart against it, even if you do it privately, or you're going to soften and say, I believe in the sinless Savior who died for me. And he died, was crucified, and was raised. The tomb is empty. Will you mock or will you believe? And as a believer, will you confirm in your heart? Yes, I believe. Will you be moved in your heart to live by the power of the resurrection? That's the Christian life.